Good morning. Good morning. All right. Good morning. Give somebody next to you a big hug and then find your seat. Michelle, enough hugging and talking. No, just kidding. It is so good to be here this morning. And, oh, look at that. We're working this morning. I love it. This morning, we are going to be talking from James. We're going to be looking at James chapter 2, verse 14 through 26. So if you have your Bibles open there, if you have your phones, oh, uh, turn them on to there, I guess, or... Uh, yeah, open that app, and we're going to be looking, reading this morning from the New Ameri- or I'm sorry, from the ESV. There we go. That was a throwback to, you know, anyway. So, okay, ESV. So we're going to be talking about salvation, and when you think about it, thinking about salvation correctly is the most significant thing that we do in life. It is the most important thing in life for every person that we know. Because it's not just this life that's at stake, it's all of eternity. I think about one of the things that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16. He tells his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever, uh, whoever loses his life for my sake We'll find it. And then Jesus makes this statement that just makes us think about this. He says, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? There's nothing more important than salvation. And when you think about that, like I just know like as a dad, when Michelle told me that she was pregnant, I was so stressed out with Jessica, that first kid. And the thing that was so overwhelming to me really was the whole idea that a kid was going to be growing up in my house and that my job, my single job in life was to point them to Christ, to read scripture, to pray for them, to see them come to know the Lord. And, and I, I couldn't think of anything worse than, than having a son or a daughter, somebody that you love, that is separated from God, that has rejected Christ. I think about all my years in youth ministry, uh, that's one of the things that I thought about for years, working with high school and junior high students, just thinking about, okay, here's a bunch of kids, and I know their parents love them, I know their parents are praying for them, and trying to lead them to faith and salvation. And one of the things I loved about being a youth pastor was I got to come alongside and be somebody else. It's not a youth pastor's job to raise kids. It's a parent's job to raise kids. But to have, a, to have a youth pastor that's coming alongside and speaking and encouraging and talking to students and pointing them to Christ. The purpose of the church is to make disciples, and that really starts with um, not just trying to help people live a better life, not just trying to help people clean up their life, not just trying to help people have a better marriage or be happier or make good decisions at work, but to be a place where people are being introduced to Jesus and that people are seeing who he is and putting their life in Jesus' hands, trusting him for salvation. So the church's job is to help people become Christians. And then Matthew 28, 19 and 20, and then to teach people to obey everything that Jesus says. 
So that's actually the purpose of the church. It's what we do, and we love and care for each other as well. And this morning, we're going to be talking, James contrasts faith that saves and faith that does not save. That's kind of a, that's a this, I'll just tell you, this is a very controversial passage in the book of James. Now, one of my favorite Proverbs, well, I have a bunch of favorite ones, but one of them is Proverbs 26, 4 and 5. Now, Proverbs 26, 4 and 5 says, Answer a fool according to his folly, and you will be like him. And then it says, Answer a fool according to his folly, or he will be wise in his own eyes. Okay, what's funny is that that book, or those verses, you'll see on the internet, People will say, you can't trust the Bible. It has contradictions. One verse says you're supposed to answer a fool. The next verse says you're not supposed to answer a fool. So let me just ask you a question. Do you think that the writer of Proverbs didn't know that he phrased something, he said the exact same thing in an opposite way? Do you think he didn't know that? Why do you think that the writer of Proverbs says if you answer a fool according to his folly, folly, then you're going to be a fool. But if you don't answer a fool according to his folly, he's going to think he's wise. Why do you think he phrased it like that? I'm going to tell you why. It's a, the exact opposite. But it makes you think, wait a second, what does that mean? And it helps you understand he's actually phrasing it from opposite sides, and he's saying something different with each proverb. One is saying if you answer a a fool according to his folly, that's just saying he's a fool and he's spouting folly. And so if you're a fool and you spout folly, you ever see a fool and they're yelling and then somebody else yells at them? It's like, well, now you're a fool just like the person you were trying to confront for being a fool. The other one is saying answer a fool according to his folly. In other words, what does his behavior deserve? Point it out to him. But don't point it out to him in the same way he's doing it. Don't become like him as you point it out to him. And so what ends up happening when you phrase those two things as opposites, you're able to think about them and say, okay, from this angle, I need to be careful not to be a fool, but I also need to think about how do I answer him properly? Okay, so what does that have to do with James chapter 2, verse 14? I don't know. Let's go. No. Okay. We see God's mercy. We're going to come to that in a second. We see God's mercy uh, in our lives because God explains genuine salvation. And that's the single most important thing that there is in life. And so this is a controversial passage. And what we're going to see is that the Apostle Paul and James say something. They both say something. And, and, and I just want you to know, these verses are so similar. It is not an accident that they are phrased this way. So Paul and James knew of each other. They were both ministering. Now James wrote first before the apostle Paul wrote But Paul was ministering, and he was teaching, and he may not have written these things yet, but he has been teaching these things. And so the apostle Paul and James, they know of each other, so either James is writing his verse because of Paul's verse, 
or Paul is writing his verse because of James' verse. But these verses are so similar. They're not just randomly phrased as opposites. They are intentionally phrased as opposites. So let's look at these verses, and then we're going to talk about what the importance is in this for us. So Paul, in Romans 3.28, says, For we hold that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And then you'll see on the James side, do you see how there's a part that equals every single one of those statements in, in Romans? It says, you see, so you see is the opposite of, for we hold that. It's not the opposite, but it's uh, opposed to it. A person is justified. One is justified. So that means the same thing. By faith, James says, by works. Paul says, apart from the works of the law. And James says, not by faith alone. And so that word for alone is something we need to pay attention to because in the context of James, he's going to define what he means by faith alone. And we're going to find out that he's talking about dead faith. So faith that's in alone, it's dead. It's actually not real faith. And so James is saying a person is not saved by dead faith. And so we'll see that in this context. And we're going to see when James says, a person is justified by works. What does that mean? And so we're going to be looking at this. And when James says a person is justified by works, I'm just going to tell you right up front in case you fall asleep later and miss it. James says that works always go with true faith. So you know if a person has true faith because there are works that go along with it. So if the faith is alone, then that faith doesn't justify. The works do justify, but they justify because they prove faith. And so we'll talk a little bit more about justification later. So that's the point. Now, this is what I, I've told you guys since I got here. The major themes in Scripture are not found in one verse, right? They're all through the Bible. And so if you read what Paul says all over the place, you know that Paul is saying the exact same thing James is saying. If you read James, even in this passage, James is saying the exact same thing Paul is saying. Paul's showing us the right-hand side of the road. James is showing us the left-hand side of the road so that we can make sure we're on the road. And so let's look at this, and I just, you know, I'm going to jump in here, and I'm going to show you where Paul says some of these same things. Romans 5.20, now the law came in to increase trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So here's what Paul says, God's grace is so amazing and so full that it doesn't matter how often you sin, it doesn't matter how much you sin. God's grace and forgiveness is enough. And so then Paul's going to go on in this. He says in Romans 6.1, just two verses later, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? So he, Paul's saying if you understand grace, God's grace enough, you might actually think incorrectly that sin doesn't matter. 
that your works don't matter. And so Paul says, the more you sin, the more grace and forgiveness there is. Isn't that an encouragement? But shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? What does he say? By no means. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. So Paul says, wait a second. If you're a Christian, you don't continue in sin. How can that be? That's not even possible that you're going to become a Christian and your life is going to stay the same. When you're saved, you then walk in newness of life. He goes on in Romans chapter 6 and he says this, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart. See, that's what James is talking about. Works justify because when you're saved, you become obedient from the heart to that standard of teaching to which you were committed. Okay. So, I said this before, but if you really want, you can go home now because we're done. No. So God's mercy is explaining genuine salvation. And one of the things that we're going to see in this contrast, um, there's actually three kinds of faith. There's faith that's non-existent. There are people who say, I don't believe. So we know that people who say, I don't believe, are not Christians, right? John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So if a person says, I don't believe, they're not a believer. But then there's another category of people who say, I believe. And of that category, there's one group that is not saved. There's another group that is saved. And what it comes down to is what kind of belief is it? Is it living belief or is it dead belief? And James is going to say there's a dead belief and there's a living belief, and he's going to describe how we can know the difference. Because only living faith saves a person. And that's what we're about. So let's look at it. James chapter 2, verse 14. It says this, first of all, Dead faith does not save. Let's look what he says. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Now, James is going to go on and he's going to answer this question and he's going to say, no, it can't save him. Look at this. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed, And lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? So what good is it? It's of no good. You know, it is interesting to me, this whole thing of, um, just in James chapter 1, he's saying that pure and undefiled religion is this to visit orphans and widows in their distress. James, it's interesting, as he talks to people, as he's talking to these Jewish believers, is he's using illustrations from their daily life. Because he's talking to a group of people, many of whom know the Lord, 
but some of whom don't. And he wants them to think about their life. And so over and over, he's giving them these practical examples, things in their life that they can look to and say, okay, what is happening in that area of my life? How do I approach this? How do I approach that? Because he's challenging them and encouraging them to consider their standing before the Lord. So our topic is salvation. And you know, James is not the only one that tells us we ought to evaluate whether or not we know the Lord. See, the Apostle Paul, who wrote those other verses, this is what he says in 2 Corinthians, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless you fail the test? You know, have you thought about, as you're reading through the New Testament, how often gospel writers say, Think about if you're really a Christian. Um, Peter does that, right? Does that in, in uh, I think it's uh, uh, 2 Peter chapter 1. He says, be careful, be diligent to make all the more certain of God's calling and choosing of you. And then he points to character qualities in life. Jesus, when he was here, said over and over to people, think about whether or not you're saved. Do you remember the wheat and the tares parable where Jesus says, hey, there's wheat and the tares and God sows wheat. Those are true believers. But then Satan comes along and he sows tares and they look so similar you can't tell them apart. And Jesus says, um, don't try to pull up the tares because you might accidentally pull up a new believer. He's just saying, it is so hard to tell the difference. Don't even try. God's going to sort that out in the end. Do you remember the parable that Jesus told about the seed that just gets thrown out onto the road? Some falls on the road, and Satan comes and takes it away. So those, those are people, they never say they believe. Then there's the, the, the seed that falls on the rocky soil, and immediately they spring up, oh, this is wonderful, but then they die from the heat. So that's, so now that's, the first one is people who say, I don't believe. Now these next three categories in Jesus' parable, they're all people who say, I believe. I believe, this is wonderful, but then the heat comes and they go away. And then the other one goes into some soil, but there's a bunch of weeds that come up. And so when the worries of this life and the love of riches come in, then they abandon the faith. And th so that's another group. So Jesus gives three categories, two saying they believe that don't really believe, and then the final one falls on good soil, and that grows up and bears fruit. Now I'm going to read you another passage. Actually, I'm going to ask you to turn there with me to Matthew chapter 7 because Jesus is going to explain something that's going to seem a little bit confusing. But if you understand what James is teaching, then this passage that Jesus teaches is going to make perfect sense to you. But you'd be confused if you didn't understand James. So Matthew 7, in the chapter of Matthew 7, the first part, verse 1 through 12, Jesus tells two things. And the first thing he says is, don't judge lest you be judged. 
In a sense, the point of that is you need to think about yourself. Get the log out of your own eye before you worry about the speck in someone else's. You want to know what the biggest problems of a morning like this morning is? You can have a bunch of people sitting around going, I wonder about Joe. I wonder if Joe's really a Christian. Sam, I've seen him do some pretty bad things. He's probably not saved. And Jesus, as he talks about this, focuses attention and says, no, you think about yourself. And then he talks about prayer, and he says, basically, God is a good, loving Father who answers prayer. And then he tells this story, and it's a pretty scary story. And let's look at it. Jesus says this, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. So Jesus is talking about the fact that in life, most people don't know the Lord. And he goes on and he says, For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Now, if you just kind of think about the world, you can go, wow, there's lots of people out there. So probably all those people in other countries that have never heard about Jesus, they're not going to heaven. Look at all the people in the United States who just say, I hate God, I don't believe in God. Well, none of them are going to heaven. But when Jesus defines who he's talking about, it actually should get our attention much more. Because what we're going to find out in this passage is Jesus in this passage is talking about people who say, I believe in Jesus. Those are the people he's talking about. Look at this. Verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. So there's going to be prophets who point us to Christ, who are teaching us religious things. Be careful of them. It's hard to tell who they really are. They're wearing sheep's clothes. But inside, they're ravenous wolves. And then he says, you will recognize them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles. So every healthy tree bears good fruit. But the deceased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. That is a reference to hell. Fruit is a reference to what your life is producing, or as James puts it, works. And then he goes on and he says, thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Now, here's how we know that Jesus is actually talking about people who say, I believe in Jesus, is what he says right here. Look at verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven now, this is scary because Jesus is talking about judgment day. And Hebrews 9.27 says it is appointed for a man to die once and then comes the judgment. So for these people, it is too late. See, in this life, we have as long as we have breath 
to put our faith in Christ. But the moment we leave this life, our fate is sealed. And so these are people who have left this life. They stand before Jesus and they say, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and in your name do many mighty works? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now, does that kind of sound like work salvation a little bit? I mean, Jesus says, you want to go to heaven, you got to do the will of my Father. You're not going to heaven because you didn't do my Father's will. You're not going to heaven because you practice lawlessness. Doesn't that sound like, oh man, you got to be good or you're not going to heaven. Doesn't it sound like that? But one of the things that you see in this too is that these people have done many religious things. So we know that it's not talking about works, it's not talking about religion, but in the wider context, Jesus has been very clear that we are not saved by our works. So why is Jesus pointing out what is your life like? And this is why. Jesus is just saying what James says. True faith produces a transformed life that is shown in behavior that is actually shown in a, tr- in a transformed heart that reflects itself in behavior. So we're saved by faith, but faith, you can always see it because faith shows itself. That's what James is going to say. So shall we look more at what James says here? Look at verse 18. Living faith does save, and it is demonstrated by works. Look at this. But someone will say, I, you have faith and I have works. And then James says this, show me faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Do you remember that verse where it says uh, that first one in Galatians? Or I'm sorry, in Romans. Let me put it back up there. You see that one is justified by works. See, you can see faith only through works in a transformed life. And that's what James is saying here. So let's look at this verse here. John says it, right? And actually, John lays belief. He says you're saved through belief. But if you don't have works, you're not saved. Right? Did you know John said that? Look at John 3.36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. So what saves you? Believing in Jesus. But look what it says here. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. What did Jesus say in John 14, 15? If you love me, you will obey me. And so he's just saying, hey, you need to look at your life. Um, how about Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, right? How do we know that we're saved by faith, not works? Doesn't Ephesians 2, 8, 9 tell us that? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 says, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, spiritually dead. Then Ephesians chapter uh, 2, verse 4 says, but God made you alive. So God takes a spiritually dead person, makes them spiritually alive, and then Paul goes on to explain this. 
And he says in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith. So it's our faith, it's our belief, it is our trust in God that saves us. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. Now here's the great thing about salvation, and this is something that should inform your prayer for yourself and others. Even faith is something God gives. It's not something that comes from us. Acts chapter 16, verse 14, Lydia is listening to Paul preach, and, and Paul says, or Acts says, that God opened her heart to believe. And so we believe when our hearts are opened by God, we put our faith in Christ. But he goes on here, and he says this in verse 9 of Ephesians 2, that it is not a result of works so that no one can boast. Nobody's ever going to stand before God and say, hey, I did all these good things. I get to go into heaven. I've done more good things than bad. Uh, a person would have to actually stand before God and say, I'm perfect. Because God's standard for heaven is perfection, right? Matthew 5, 48, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So nobody meets that standard. And you'll notice these people standing before Jesus. What were they relying on? See, when Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you, they don't say, Jesus, I believed in you. I, I trusted you for salvation. I wasn't good enough, but you lived a good enough life for me. You promised to save me if I believe in you. That was not the answer they gave, right? What was their answer? Hey, didn't we cast out demons? Didn't we do miracles in your name? See, they were pointing to their works. And Jesus says, no, depart from me. I never knew you. He didn't have a relationship with them. They weren't born again into his family. And so what we see here is that Ephesians chapter 2, it says that nobody can boast that they were good enough because our being good enough doesn't get us into heaven. Jesus' being good enough gets us into heaven. But look what it says in Ephesians 2 verse 10. It says this, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. See, when you become a Christian, God transforms your life. He changes you. You remember 2 Corinthians 5.17? In Christ you are a new creature. Old things have passed away. New things have come. See, the Bible tells us that the moment you become a Christian, the moment you put your faith in Christ, God gives you a new heart. You are now indwelled by the Holy Spirit. You are baptized in the Holy Spirit. You become a temple of the Holy Spirit, which means that the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. Now, when the Holy Spirit lives inside of you, when you're given a new heart, when you are transformed, that will show itself in what you think, how you behave, and what you do. And so that's all James is saying here is, if you have been transformed spiritually, that will show up in the way you live your life. So that's what James is saying. Let's look on. He gives us some examples here in this passage. And he, there are three examples that are given of faith. And one is an, an example of demon, demonic faith. Then there's the faith of Abraham, and there's the faith of Rahab, and these are given as examples, so let's look at them. James chapter 2, verse 19, you believe that God is one, 
So he's talking to Jewish people, and what was the Shema, right? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He's saying, you think you have right theology. You believe that the Lord is one. And James just says, yeah, guess what? So do the demons. And so he's saying, okay, if you're just relying on that you have right theology to get you into heaven, well, demons have good theology in this area. He says, um, even the demons believe in shudder. Now, what is James doing there? He's saying, you say you have faith apart from works. Oh, it doesn't matter how I live. It doesn't matter what I do. My behavior is no reflection of whether or not I know the Lord. It's just as long as I say I believe. But James says, hey, demons have works to their faith, right? The demons believe and they shiver. They shake. There's some kind of result in their life. And demons are definitely not saved. So if even demonic faith causes actions, how can you say as a believer I have no actions? Like that's incompatible. It doesn't fit. And so then he goes on and he says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? And then here again he's going to explain this carefully so that we don't think that Abraham's works is what made him righteous before God. He's going to explain to us that all his works did was show that he had real faith. He just says that plainly here. You see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. The natural outflowing of genuine faith is works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So right there, where does James say that Abraham's righteousness came from? Was it, did it come from his works? No, it says right here, he believed God, that was counted as righteousness. But he explains how you know he really believed God because of what he did. And then we look at Hebrews' description of Abraham's faith. It says, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. And then later in verse 17, talking about the sacrifice of his son, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, which figuratively speaking, he received him back. So we know, you often wonder, God promises Abraham, hey, Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. And by the way, it's coming through Isaac. And then God says to, to Abraham, go sacrifice Isaac. And so this is the promise. This is what they've been waiting for. And then he takes him up, lays him on an altar, and he lifts up a knife. And he's thinking, what was in his mind? And Hebrews tells us, Abraham says, God always keeps his promises. If God tells me to do this, I'm going to do it, and God will raise him from the dead. That's actually what was in Abraham's mind as he did that. My son will not die no matter what happens because God's made me a promise. And so he acted out of faith. There's another example that's given here, and it goes on, um, and he was called a friend of God. And then verse 24, this is the verse I put up on the screen, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So the, the works vindicate faith. 
And there's a play on words going on here because the works prove the faith, but the faith brings justification. So works justify when they show true faith. Let's look at the next example, verse 25. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the message and sent them out by another way. And so here we see Hebrews 11 also, the chapter of faith, explains Rahab. Look what it says. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. So her behavior was merely a reflection of faith. And so this is a very, very important passage for us to think about. You know what's most important for us to think about concerning ourselves? Um, This is a shocking thing, but I've been at pastor's conferences where they will make an announcement that somebody became a Christian, that one of the pastors, in listening to a sermon, came to the understanding, I don't know the Lord, and put their faith in the Lord. Now, could you imagine if you send Craig and I off to a pastor's conference and then I come back the next week and say, hey, I've got good news. I realized I wasn't a Christian, but I became a Christian this weekend. And these are men who are leading churches, who are preaching every week, who are studying Scripture. I have commentaries on my shelf from very intelligent men who are not Christians but they can study Greek and they can study Hebrew and they can look at the rules of grammar and they can make observations that are helpful, but they don't know the Lord. Is it unthinkable that a person could with good intentions get into ministry and lead a church and not realize that they don't know the Lord? See, that happens. Sometimes we look around at the church and we just think, man, why is the church a mess? Why does this happen? Why does that happen? Well, a lot of times it's because there are people in the church who aren't believers, and sometimes they don't even know they're not believers. And then we wonder why things work out the way they do. Sometimes it's just people's sinfulness and fallenness because even as believers we struggle, right? So this is a very important thing for us to think about. Uh, One of the things that I find is interesting is can you find any examples of people who deny Christ but are still Christians? And we can, right? Peter did that, right? Jesus said, if you deny me before men, I'm going to deny you before my father. But what did Peter do? The pressure was up. And Peter said, I don't know Jesus. So he denied Jesus, but he was saved. But the general rule is, if you deny Jesus, you're not a believer. Can we think of examples of genuine Christians, genuine believers who have done terrible, committed terrible sins? We can, right? I mean, let's just go to the big one, right? David. Uh, David has, commits adultery, and then he murders somebody. Now, this was a man that God used to write Scripture. And when Nathan confronts him, um, some, some things we hear about, about David is that entire time that he was in sin, uh, Psalm 32 tells us that God's hand was heavy on him. His strength was just wasting away. He was in turmoil. He felt so terrible about what he did. That was the Holy Spirit in his life. 
And then Nathan comes and confronts him, and his response is to confess, to repent, to take ownership, to turn back to the Lord. He repents. Think about King Saul. King Saul commits some sins that in my book, they don't seem as bad. He sacrifices and makes an offering that he's not supposed to make. Um, God tells him, go kill the king and wipe out all the animals. And he doesn't kill the king and he doesn't wipe out the animals. And then Nathan shows up and he confronts Saul. And what does Saul say? He says, hey, how come you disobeyed God? He's like, no, no, I, I've obeyed God completely. Wait a second, God said kill the king. He's standing right there. God said kill all the animals, but I'm listening to all the animals. And Saul says, well, I only did that because I love the Lord. I wanted to make some sacrifices. So he actually takes his sinful behavior and labels it as not sinful. See, that's one of the marks of a person who's been spiritually transformed is when they're living in sin, they know it's sin, and they feel terrible about it. But when you have a person who, oh, man, I'm living in sin, and I love it. Hey, there's nothing wrong with what I'm doing. That's the re a reflection of not real faith. And so it's not that people don't struggle. But in Christ, you're a new creature. All things have passed away. So really what it comes down to, James is saying, you need to evaluate your heart. You need to look at your life. One of the things that Jesus says is you know what's in your heart by what you say. You know what's in your heart by what you do. And true faith transforms the heart. So as I think about it, when I evaluate my salvation, that's actually one of the things I look back to when I got saved. And I think about how much my life changed. There were so many times I prayed to receive Christ as a kid. And nothing in my life ever changed. I thought about hell. I'm like, man, I don't want to go there. And I know hell's real. And I know Jesus is real. And I know that I need forgiveness. And, and, but you know what? I actually just love the world. Love the sin in the world. I'd go away to a camp on a weekend, pray to receive Christ. And I think, all right, I'm going to live for the Lord. And then I'd go back to school. And on Monday, I'd get off the bus. I would take two steps and see my unbelieving friends. And I'd say, ah, forget it. I'm not doing that. And I'd run off with my friends. So then I finally pray to receive Christ. I remember the day, just like Acts 16, 14, I remember the day that God opened up my eyes and I saw Jesus for what he was. Instead of being this person that had all these rules that I didn't want to obey, I saw him as this loving heavenly father. In fact, Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And I remember the day before, Jesus' yoke was so heavy, it was too heavy for me to bear. Obedience, all these things that Jesus said, I don't want it, I don't want to do it. And I remember the day that that changed, and all of a sudden I saw Jesus' yoke, and it was easy and it was light. And the thinking in my mind went like this. Jesus made the world and he made me, and he knows what will make me happy. He knows what will satisfy me. He knows better how to live life than I do. That's how that went. And I said, okay, Jesus, whatever you tell me, I'll do. And then for the rest of that year, you know, I continued to struggle in sin. One of the things I thought about was I was a Christian. I was working construction. And as I worked construction, every time I hit my finger with a, th with a hammer, guess what came out of my mouth? I, I won't even give some hints, but you can guess. 
And you know, I just decided that's a bad testimony. I want to stop doing that. And I probably hit my hammer, my, my thumb, or banged my head, or s did something that went wrong like 20 times a day. And so 20 times every single day, multiply that for a month. 20 times every single day, I just let out profanity every time something happened. And I just kept saying, God, forgive me. Help me to change. And after the first month, I, was, I didn't see any difference. After the second month, I didn't see any difference. I mean, I was like, I'm thinking through, okay, I hope there's lots of grace to cover all my sin. And by the way, that was not my only sin. But by the third month, the end of the third month, I thought, hey, you know, that's kind of weird. I just realized I don't use profanity anymore. And as time went on, the next year, I thought about all the things in my life that were different. And you know, all the big sins that were dominating my life, they were all gone. And it wasn't because I changed myself. I realized God changed my heart. I had different desires. And my life was completely different. And I, I do remember actually being um, a freshman in college. I went away bi to Bible college to become a pastor. And I remember um, walking down to the cafeteria and thinking to myself, you know, I actually can't think of anything else I have to work on because I've completely gotten rid of every sin in my life. Like I couldn't think of anything else I had to do. Like I, I wasn't stealing anymore. I didn't drink. I wasn't getting in fights. Like I'm just listing all these things, these sin issues I was trying to get out of my life. And I remember going to church and just thinking, you know, I'm 20. It can't be possible that by 20 I'm done working on my life as a Christian. And then the Lord blessed me with marriage. <laughs> and I got somebody else that could help me point out all the things in my life I still needed to work on. And what I realized was I was actually one of the things I was so prideful that I was blind to ton, tons of things in my life. And the reality is I, was, I just got rid of the big sins, but I had so many problems in my life that I still needed to work on. I just didn't see and today I actually see a lot more wrong with myself than I did then. And I've actually grown a lot. And so the absence of sin is not what saves a person. Trusting and relying on Jesus saves a person. But if, you're, if in your life there's no heart transformation, then you don't know the Lord. Now, we're going to wrap this up here. But this is an important place to say this because we love each other. And the people who confess Jesus, it's possible to sit in church, confess Jesus, and not know him. And so it's important for us to think about that. And, and I think the biggest thing that we need to recognize is that God is the one who changes hearts. I think about people that I know and love that don't walk with the Lord. I don't try to convince myself that they're believers if everything in their life says they're not. It's kind of funny how we can take an exception and try to make it the rule. Not everybody says they believe in Jesus but maybe they still do. But I just pray for people. I pray that the Lord will change their heart. If you're, if you're not sure where you are, or you're struggling, pray that the Lord would work in your heart. Talk to somebody. But God loves us, and uh, Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, whoever believes in the Lord will not be disappointed. So you don't have to worry that God's gonna say one day, ha ha, see you thought you were saved, but you really weren't. We go back to what God says, if I ask you for salvation, if I trust you for salvation, if I'm believing in you, if I'm calling out to you, you will save me. Let's pray.
Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your encouragement. God, I ask that you would help us to live faithful lives. Lord, open up our eyes. If there is something in us where we think we're believers and we're not, help us to see that. Lord, if we're struggling with confidence in our salvation, give us a peace and a confidence that we know you and that we trust you and that we're relying on you. Lord, I thank you for your word in your name. Amen.